Welcome to another episode of the Real Atheology Podcast. I'm Justin Schieber. My co-host Ben Watkins and I will be recording another episode for you this upcoming weekend. But until then, enjoy this very recent interaction between myself and Blake Giunta of beliefmap.org, an excellent resource for anybody interested in the God question. The interaction took place on the excellent radio program out of the UK titled Unbelievable with Justin Brierley who, as always, was a gracious host. As the title suggests, we debate the problem of divine hiddenness as articulated and defended by John Schellenberg. I've edited out the first portion, which was primarily about Blake and his work on beliefmap.org, and the very last section, which is Blake restating all of his objections to the hiddenness argument that you will have already heard at the beginning. And I've also edited out uh, the commercial breaks. Uh, But the interactions between Blake and I are, are all there and preserved. Having become very familiar with the literature on divine hiddenness and with Blake's objections to it, I don't find his objections to be successful, but please do not let that influence your giving Blake a thoughtful and fair hearing on his objections to the divine hiddenness argument. Uh, Please enjoy. Well, today we're asking, why is God hidden? This isn't a subject we've explicitly opened up on the program before, but it's kind of one of the most obvious questions you could ask, I suppose. Why doesn't God make his existence more explicit? If God wants people to believe in him, well, just show up and get people to believe in you. Um, Why do we have to jump through so many uh, kind of hoops, I suppose, to to provide evidence for God in in apologetics and that kind of thing? And is is that whole thing evidence that there simply isn't a God behind it all? Um, I don't know if I've just done your job for you there, Justin, but do you want to sort of lay out the the argument uh, against God, if you like, from divine hiddenness and and just just kind of how you would express it and, and why you find it pretty compelling? Sure. Yeah. So the argument from divine hiddenness, I mean, obviously, as you laid out, the intuition behind the argument uh, goes goes back quite a while. But uh, I would argue that the most uh, substantive formulation of the argument uh, is by a philosopher by the name of uh, J.L. Schellenberg. And in 1993, he put out a book uh, titled Divine, um, Divine Hiddenness and Human Reason. And he's since developed this argument, and it's, it's, it's spurred a, a, a whole swath of interesting papers and books on the issue um, but today I'm going to be just kind of presenting a, a, a brief version of his, of his latest articulation of the argument. And so th- the first premise of the argument is that if, if a perfectly loving God exists, then there exists a God who's always open to a personal relationship with any finite person. So the notion here is that we're taking perfect love, we're taking divine love, and we're just taking it as seriously as we can. Um, God is supposed to be unsurpassably loving. Now, if premise one is true, then arguably it entails premise two, which is that if there exists a perfect, uh, I'm sorry, if there exists a God who is always open to personal relationship with any finite person, then no finite person is ever non-resistantly in a state of non-belief in relation to the proposition that God exists. So essentially what is being said here is that uh, if such a God exists, then no one is going to non-resistantly fail to believe in God. Uh, then we can get to premise three, which is informed by one and two, that if a perfectly loving God exists, then no finite person is ever non-resistantly in a state of non-belief in relation to the proposition that God exists. This is essentially just saying, if God exists, there would be no non-resistant non-believers. But premise four tells us that quite clearly they are there are persons who both do not believe 
and are also non-resistant to the idea. And just and just define what you mean by non-resistant, because I think that that's a phrase that obviously is important in this. And by that, I kind of assume you mean someone who would believe if there was the evidence to believe. They don't have ulterior sure. motives for rejecting belief in God. Is that? Yeah, they don't have any kind of, uh, you know, they don't they don't have this kind of general resistance attitude toward either relationship with God or toward belief in God. Right. So the idea here is that they're just open about it. They're open-minded. Mm. So presumably, many of the non-believers in the world that exist have such an attitude. Um, not all persons can be described as being, you know, I mean, sure, there are going to be some persons out there who just, you know, like a Christopher Hitchens, who uh, really kind of detest the idea of this kind of, mm. uh, you know, divine overlord, right? But but that's not a true description of, of all non-believers. And so that's the kind of that's the evidence being put forward here is the existence of this kind of reasonable, non-resistant non-belief. And so if you follow those premises and if you, you, if you agree with them, then it follows inescapably that therefore no perfectly loving God exists. And so that's the kind of summary of the argument. And I know there are a lot of objections and, and, and Blake has a, has a number of them that he, uh, that he finds compelling. And so I'm excited to discuss that. Great. Well, you've really helpfully outlined a kind of systematic way of, of looking at the argument there. And, and I think what it does turn on is this idea that there are people who are open, perfectly open to the idea of God, yet still don't believe. And that is not consistent with the idea that God is loving and wants to have a relationship with anyone who is non-resistant to him. And and I, I've met people who, who fit that category who would who would tell me at least, you know, I can't judge exactly what's going on, but from the best of what they say, they say, uh, uh, if there is a God, I want to know about it. I want to be in relationship with that God, but I just haven't been able to believe for whatever reason. Um, and uh, All so, right, so Briarly yeah. Doris's premise four, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm saying, I on the face of it, I see people who who tell me that is the way it is for them. Um, sure, sure. So, so you know, um, but okay. Over to you then, Blake. Um, we've had the argument outlined there. Um, John Schellenberg, uh, I've been told, is is the person uh, who's really done the major work on this as well. And I, I know that you've interacted with a lot of his materials. So um, let's just give you space now to kind of lay out how you're going to be trying to handle this across the course of the, the, the program. Uh, yeah, sure. So like Justin said, this is an argument about God's perfect love. There are different versions of the hiddenness argument. So maybe this isn't the type of hiddenness argument that you'd endorse, you know, if you're an atheist listener. But for many, this is how they'd go about it. And like Justin said, yes, it's an argument that was put forward by uh, Professor John Schellenberg at Mount St. Vincent University. And just to recap again, the argument says that a perfectly loving God would pretty much, uh, by definition, according to Schellenberg, ensure that everyone is always able to be in a relationship with God just by trying, unless they're deceiving themselves. That's what would make them resistant. Um, so if any person exists at any time who cannot enter into a relationship with God just by trying, then a perfectly loving God must not exist. And, and sure enough, he goes on to say some such persons do exist. Uh, there are people who don't believe God exists, and so they can't enter into a relationship with God just by trying. And so, conclusion, um, a perfectly loving God uh, cannot exist. And uh, I, I want to thank Justin Schieber uh, so much for having this conversation with me, and especially um, I'm wanting to thank him because he's letting me run through uh, a list here of 14 reasons for why 
God may allow non-belief, and he's doing this knowing he's probably not going to have time to respond to them all. Um, so I did want to say thanks uh, quickly here uh, for that. Um, sure thing. As, yeah, and as as Justin Schieber knows, I think that Schellenberg's argument is so bold um, that it's nearly impossible to defend, and it's in part because I think there are so many uh, plausible possibilities for why God may allow non-belief. And these are possibilities that um, Justin would have to close off for uh, Schellenberg's argument to work. Um, so as we've been alluding to, I've uh, done a big research project on this topic uh, at beliefmap.org. And I arranged these 14 possibilities that I'm about to list into five major categories. So just running through them, uh, here they are. Category one says this. Uh, some non-theists who are not resistant to belief in God are nevertheless resistant to relationship. And so if they became theists, um, they may even become enemies of God. And I've heard this from several members of the New Atheist community, and this is relevant because the reason God is allegedly motivated to ensure that everyone is a theist is to allow for a relationship. And that motivation just doesn't exist for God when it comes to non-theists who he knows uh, would immediately reject relationship. Category number two uh, goes like this. It says, for some non-believers, if they became theists in their current state, uh, they would just form a perpetually improper relationship with God. And it could be an improper relationship where, for example, the human won't ever believe or trust that God is all good. So, for example, very plausibly, there are many people out there who will just never agree with God's views or decisions about homosexuality or hell, or God's reasons for allowing death and suffering. Now, maybe God could deal with this person's aversion if uh, the person was open to God's morally transforming them, but many people could and probably do exist who are not at all open to this kind of moral transformation. So that was number one, and here are examples number two, three, and four of improper relationships. Uh, number two, a relationship where the human would instantly be or become jealous of God's power. So Christians who uh, believe the Bible commonly say Satan falls into this category. Um, Dumsday published an entire paper on this possibility for humans. Um, or number three, a relationship where uh, the human would consider himself authority in the way that the relationship is formed. Uh, Moser published a, a book that covers this at length. Um, or number four, a relationship where the human would lack right desire for God. So, for example, we can imagine a non-theist coming to belief in God, and now he is praising and praying to God and doing these relationship-like things uh, selfishly, just for gifts. Maybe he's interested in a paradise afterlife. He wants heaven. Um, or he's doing it just for religious experiences. He could care less about God. He just wants his spiritual fix. Or um, the new theist is doing it just to escape punishment, right? So many atheists will testify that if they became theists right now, they would obey and worship God, but only because it would feel like there's a divine gun at their head. So yes, it's a relationship, but it's very improper. Mm -hmm. And again, this is all relevant because any improper relationship like these could be such that it's better for it to have never existed at all. And I'll add the improper relationship doesn't even have to be perpetual for God to want to avoid it. If God knows it will be an improper relationship even for a decent amount of time, 
he may slowly orchestrate events in the non-theist's life to prepare her so that when she does enter into a relationship, it will instantly be a proper one. And just to remind about the structure of the argument here, Schellenberg would need to rule this all out as even being possible uh, for his argument to work. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Category number three for hiddenness goes like this. Some non-theists, if they became theists, would uh, instantly enter into proper relationship with God, but then abandon it later in life. And this is relevant because then the relationship plausibly holds no value to God or even negative value. Uh, So God can know that a given relationship will either become permanently improper, or God can know that the person will permanently abandon the relationship altogether, and God can hate it. Um, An objector might come back and say, well, uh, God would prefer a short-lived relationship rather than none at all. But entering into a relationship with God and then permanently cutting off relationship later could be, to God, analogous to divorce. In fact, there are a couple reasons to think it is like divorce, uh, both conceptually and biblically, if if you accept the Bible. So God very plausibly may wish the relationship to have never existed because he knows it results in this everlasting divorce. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, three categories of reasons so far for why God may allow some non-belief. Category number four for hiddenness goes like this. Plausibly, greater relationship goods ultimately obtain with some hiddenness towards non-believers, specifically more relationship numbers or quantity or more relationship quality, okay? So let's think about numbers first. Uh, Let's take a hypothetical person who we somehow uh, know would both enter and stay in proper relationship. So categories number one to three don't apply to her. Uh, I don't know that anyone like this exists, which again is why I think Schellenberg's argument is already impossible to defend, but let's pretend we've confirmed at least one exists. Um, For all we know, God's ensuring that she becomes a theist so that she freely enters into a relationship could require or result in two or more persons not freely choosing to be in relationship with God. And the idea here is that the butterfly effect uh, in conjunction with free will makes it impossible for us to tell. For all we know, this world has the best or one of the best distributions which result in the largest percentage of people freely entering into proper relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And that's just talking about relationship numbers. Um, We'd also have to talk about and calculate for relationship quality. So um, let's simplify our calculation here and just consider, again, our one hypothetical person who we somehow know would enter into proper relationship and stay there. It could be that if God ensures she comes to both belief and relationship later, uh, then God could do it in a more powerful way. So if God gives someone a powerful conversion testimony, um, they get to dwell on that and enjoy that for all of eternity, worshiping God all the more um, as if it were like a great marriage proposal. Um, You always get to enjoy it. Yeah, I get the Uh, idea. If God could give that gift by waiting for a relationship, let's say just for one minute, and if that's the case, then – you know, contra what Schellenberg would say, it's very plausible that God would wait one minute – um, in order to get that good of a great proposal that you get to enjoy for eternity. Again, it's just an example. Um, another way of bringing more relationship quality for eternity is by allowing the person to seek for a while. Um, so lots of psychology studies show that um, we more appreciate what we work for. 
And so again, this is uh, for a finite cost of hiddenness. Uh, for a time, you get a relationship benefit for eternity. And this is probably true of C.S. Lewis's conversion, for example. And again, these are examples of how some hiddenness can buy you more relationship goods, which God, being all-loving, may prefer. And this is the final category, number five. Um, and it doesn't limit itself to relationships. That That's what makes it different from category four. So category number five for hiddenness goes like this. Greater goods total around the world could ultimately obtain with God's existence being unclear to some non-believers. And this is relevant because it's not implausible that God would freely choose to prioritize these goods. Uh, hiddenness buys us, and here we're skimming like 10 or 20 peer-reviewed papers, um, more uncoursed moral choices. Okay, So some atheists, if they become overtly aware of God's presence, they would plausibly be faced with overwhelmingly coercive reason to obey God, and it would snuff out their free will, is the argument. Uh, they might be coercively concerned with fear of God's punishment or the appeal of reward from God or God's opinion of them if they're seeking divine approval or some conjunction of these things. Hiddenness also buys us goods like more justice. Henry and Wainwright published on this, um, and if I had more time, this might be my main point to camp out on. Um, God is perfectly loving, but he's also perfectly just, um, and that confuses uh, Schellenberg's argument, I think. Um, it buys us, hiddenness can also buy us goods like more mercy, Dumsday published on this, uh, or more moral knowledge, Ray's published a bit on this, or more seeking of God as the good, uh, a lot of people have published on this, or more cooperation and relationship among humans. Um, Swinburne covers this quite a bit in his book. So um, for this fifth category, uh, hiddenness can buy us a lot of goods that you may not notice at first. So just to summarize and read these categories off again, category one said plausibly some persons would just immediately reject relationships, so God has no reason to bring them to belief. Category number two said plausibly some persons would just have a perpetually improper relationship that God doesn't want. Category number three said plausibly some persons would just abandon a relationship later in life. Category four said plausibly greater goods of relationship that God wants may only obtain with some divine silence towards some non-believers. And category five said plausibly with some divine silence towards some non-believers, God can obtain certain greater goods total that he desires. If it's plausible that God may allow even one of these non-theists I discussed to exist for even one moment uh, then Schellenberg's whole argument falls. And at least for me, the prospects of being able to conclusively show that none of these reasons are even plausible for even one person uh, seems hopeless. So those are my thoughts, um, and I look forward to getting uh, Justin's feedback. Well, we will do that on the other side of a quick break. We're talking about the argument about divine hiddenness as an objection to God. Uh, shouldn't God simply reveal himself to everyone who's willing to enter into a relationship with him well we've just heard blake gunter explaining a whole raft of reasons why god may have reasons for not doing that and um justin sheber our atheist guest is going to be coming back with his response to this in just a moment's time uh, you're listening to the program that dives deep every week here on unbelievable bringing you conversations between christians and non-christians we'll be back in a moment's time You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. 
Good afternoon and welcome back to Unbelievable, uh, the show that brings Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue and debate every week. Find us online and add your thoughts there as well to the latest show at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. And of course, links there to uh, various articles, features, videos and conference details for this year. Unbelievable Conference 2017 happening Saturday, the 13th of May in central London. Yes, we're back again. Um, We've got some brilliant speakers and thinkers uh, joining us. People like uh, John Lennox are going to be uh, with us for the day at uh, the brewery in London. So uh, find out about the conference, all the speakers, the seminars and uh, how you can get hold of the early bird ticket. Not too late to get hold of that still uh, at present. So uh, that's uh, all available at premier.org.uk forward slash why Christ. Um, we're talking today about divine hiddenness. And again, if you want to get in touch about anything you hear on the show, I do encourage you to email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk. We'll be hearing some of your feedback towards the end of today's show. And uh, you can also, of course, find us online uh, from the from the website. You can find the social media as well. Um, we've heard in the first section, uh, really, one of our guests laying out Firstly, the problem of divine hiddenness. Justin Sheba is our atheist guest on the program today, and he's explained why, uh, as far as he sees, if there is an all-loving God, um, then that God should make people aware of his existence if they're open to being in a relationship with him, if they're non-resistant, as he says, and and spelled that, that out in a kind of the strictly philosophical argument for that. But the fact that people do exist who are non-resistant to God, but yet don't believe suggest there is no all-powerful or loving god um and uh, and then we heard a, a variety of reasons why god might have perfectly good reasons for not revealing himself towards people uh, for a variety of reasons there were five different categories in fact that uh, our christian guest uh, blake gunter gave he's a, a young christian philosopher and uh, again uh, there's going to be links to both of my guests and where you can explore this issue which we've already gotten into at quite a depth um you can do that more from from the the show page but um uh, justin sheba coming back to you then as we start to unpack the this defense that blake's given there i mean a lot of it for me was reminiscent of the kinds of arguments that sometimes theologians and philosophers give against um evil um and why god would allow certain types of evil for character development sure. and and soul making and that kind of thing uh, equally, it had overtones of the discussion you had as well with Randall a few weeks ago on why would God allow religious diversity in the world? And again, Ra- Randall yeah. had had similar reasons to some of the ones that Blake gave there for greater goods that can come from the fact we have to live with each other with our differences and everything. Um, so so uh, as Blake said, you, you won't be able to respond in detail to all of those uh, many, many reasons he gave. But where do you want to start? And I'll, I'll give you a good chance to have a run at it. Sure, sure. I think I think a good place to start is to, you know, at the right, right at the beginning there, um, Blake made the correct observation that this argument is a bold argument. It's a deductive argument, um, and I think that that's right. But I think that it is that its strength is in proportion to taking love seriously, to taking divine love seriously. The argument is bold as love, as perhaps Jimi Hendrix would say. <laughs> um, so I think that this is one of the few places where you can find. Uh, persons of all stripes, uh, atheists and theists, taking this notion seriously and thinking about the implications of it. So, um, you know, as as you just heard, Blake laid out a whole swath of uh, potential objections to this argument, and uh, perhaps a good place to start, one of the most intuitive uh, objections uh, is that, you know, God um, allows persons to exist in a non-resistant state of non-belief, 
because uh, in his foreknowledge, God perhaps knows that uh, upon entering uh, or upon acquiring belief that uh, that they that these persons would um, form a, an, an improper relationship. So they would enter relationship for the wrong reasons, for example, or um, you know they would have a particularly uh, ungrateful attitude toward God or something like that. There's a number of different ways mm. in which this might uh, come about. Um, now, what's what's interesting though is that I think that this kind of undermine this is a kind of low view of the divine. Um, for example, um, parents, when they form relationships with their children, or when children form relationships with their parents, oftentimes, it is not under ideal circumstances. Oftentimes, children only enter relationships because of something they can get out of that relationship, or uh, perhaps they do it for another reason that's that's less than righteous, right? Um, the point is that the that the parent, if perfectly loving, doesn't see that as a reason to withdraw completely from the child. Rather, this is a reason to, within the context of a relationship, so within the context of something that requires belief, to kind of shepherd the person toward a more mature understanding of of uh, of what a proper relationship is. So this is, you know, all these different reasons. These are the genesis of divine relationships. Um, but this could just be the first step in a complex and reciprocal relationship. Relationships are complex things. They, they're not always going to be, um, you know, flowers and candy. They're always, they're, they're, there are going to be tensions within a relationship. And so all of these things that Blake lays out are things that can be accommodated within uh, a human divine relationship. And those, those tensions that Blake refers to as reasons that God would completely resist relationship— or be out uh, um, withdrawal from humans. Um, those are actually reasons that make the relationships more valuable. The fact that there are relationships that include tensions and um, and problem solving that makes the relationship richer. So rather than being reasons for God to uh, hide, these are reasons for God to uh, rather show Himself to persons, enter relationships, and have that deep, meaningful back and forth. These are two-way streets, and that's the most richest uh, goods you can have. So that's what I would say for that. So, so that that specifically um, it comes back to the idea that um, people would enter relationships for the wrong reasons and, and have improper relationships and so on. God should be able to work even within that to to bring about His purposes and so on. Do, do you want to respond Absolutely. to any of the the other categories that uh, Blake outlined? Well, I think there. I mean, there are. There are objections that go all throughout those, but I think it might be best to kind of camp out on on a few of them to really get kind of in depth. Yeah, um, okay. With the knowledge that I'm not going to be able to address <laughs> everything. Of no, absolutely. Fair enough. Um, well, look, and let's let's have the conversation then here, Blake. And yeah, I, I guess the point that Justin's making there is simply: couldn't God accommodate within a human divine relationship the outworking of you know some of these issues? Um, that uh, yes, there will be people who who en- enter for improper motives and you know in terms of the relationship, but but perfectly within God's power to see that 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 whatever needs to happen to to make it the right relationship happens within the context of them them believing that he exists so um yeah how how do you respond to that um yeah so i see two things that need to be responded to um first he pointed out how well look these sorts of tensions are are normal in a relationship and it can result in a richer relationship over time 
And secondly, he thinks that it's actually um, a lower view of the divine because think about how a parent would respond. Um, regarding that first one, I think it might misunderstand what the category is talking about. The category was very specific to say that um, there may be non-believers who, if they entered into uh, belief in God, um, might enter into a relationship, but it would be improper, and it would be perpetually improper. So it's not as if the individual would develop a richer relationship over time. They are such that they would continually resist relationship because there's nothing that God could do. For instance, uh, uh, I gave I gave uh, four I gave five examples of improper relationship. The first one was that you know the human might never ever believe or trust that God's all good, and I gave the example of you know someone who's just always going to be um, uh, opposed to a, a God who says that homosexuality, homosexual sex, is morally impermissible. Um, and so this person, no matter how how long uh, they may be even friends with God, God will just never. Um, convince them that that's the right way to do things or that that's something that they should should like they could be actually kind of disgusted with that view of god so he's not their god they might be friends with god they might be in a relationship but the person would never submit to god in the kind of uh proper relationship that god's seeking and very quickly the second uh, objection was that this is a low view of the divine so again think about your parents but two points first uh god need not be like a parent um it could be more like a marriage, and knowing that the relationship will be improper, for example, that someone's marrying you just for your money, um, could be a great reason to avoid such a marriage. So it doesn't need to be like a parental relationship. And if it were you know, a biological parent relationship, think—and again, I don't accept that—but think of an adoptive parent instead in the biological parent. Um, uh, focus now on the, adopt, on the biological parent that hasn't met the child. Suppose that biological parent knows that if they entered into a relationship with their biological son or daughter, that that biological son or daughter would in, would be in in very improper relationship with the biological parent. Again, maybe they would just want to be uh, friends because the um, parent is rich. That's just an example. Hmm. Um, that could be a perfectly good reason to avoid relationship with your biological child. Would would be the argument. Yeah, um, Justin. Yeah. So. He, he responds in a number of ways. So one of them being that, look, these, uh, you know, the, the objections are misunderstanding the argument that really he's talking about persons who would enter and form perpetually improper relationships. So one of the uh, reasons he gave here are that, you know, a person wouldn't believe that God is good um, because if, you know, God has this particular, you know, potentially, perhaps God views homosexuality as wrong and this person's moral intuitions are so opposed to that that they could never really uh, accept that. Um, I mean, I find this, uh, frankly, just impossible. It makes no sense to say that upon entering a, a upon acquiring belief in God and entering relationship with God, that God could not, within that relationship, accommodate these things in such a way as to say, okay, well, look, well, first of all, if, if you don't believe that God is good, for some reason, we're now advocating a view of the divine that gives an improper understanding of what God is. And I don't know of any theist who would take seriously the notion that God would only reveal himself to to persons um, as a morally deficient God. Uh, that, that seems just wrong-headed. Um, moreover, if we want to say something like, well, perhaps God has moral views that persons are uncomfortable with, um, 
persons are always going to be uh, eventually uh, immune to reason. So, for example, unless they're completely resistant, which in which case this is a, a complete red herring and it, it's irrelevant to the argument. So, for example, if, if a person, if, if it's the case and God knows it to be the case that homosexuality is wrong, then what, would, what it would take for the person to understand that is that God would kind of shepherd them morally, would kind of connect the dots morally, right? So I, I currently believe that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, but maybe I'm wrong about that. What would require me to change my mind would be for someone to connect the moral dots, to, to provide the reasons for that moral truth, and uh, then I would be uh, helpless but to accept it. Once you, I mean, beliefs are not choices in, in that way. So God, within the context of relationship, would slowly show, would slowly reveal why uh, homosexuality is wrong, if, if that were to be the case. And that's something that can happen within a relationship, and that kind of, perpe- that kind of perpetual learning relationship makes that relationship all the more rich and rewarding uh, for both the well-being of the individual involved and just the relationships having, having an intrinsic value on its own. So I just don't find this uh, this mm. even a possible. Mm. It seems to undermine the power and the uh, resources of the divine. Yeah. Okay. So Blake, there's a bit of an impasse here because I think Justin is just saying he just thinks if God's God, then God has the resources to make it happen. You know, make it work um, to accommodate, as he says, uh, the, the the fact that people will be in different states of disposition towards you know his. Um, divine views and whatever um but but he'll make it work just as we do in in our human relationships and so on um but for you it sounds like it it, it simply is possible that people would there, there there would there could feasibly be positions where people simply refuse to change even with god kind of doing his very best to 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 win them over in that sense yeah, so there's two responses. Um, first, I, I don't know if it's as easy as Justin's implying for God to prove someone that he's all good. I mean, God could do all these sorts of good things for them, but that doesn't necessarily prove that God is morally perfect. Um, he might, the option might be for God just to force on a belief to them, but then there's an argument that that would violate free will. Um so if someone will never trust God, then the question is, aside from violating their free will, what could he possibly do to convince them that he's all good um, and that his command is is perfectly good? Some of that is just going to require faith in God. Um, there's not necessarily something he can reveal to um, change that. Um, the other thing is, let's say he does uh, convince somehow uh, the uh, the new theist that he is all good. Um that doesn't necessarily change things. The, the, the new theist could say, okay, fine, I, God has somehow convinced me that homosexuality is morally wrong and moral wrongness, to use a philosopher's word, supervenes on God's commands. But fine, then I don't care what's morally right or wrong in this case. I still strongly dislike any God who would command that um, homosexuals not be able to live in accordance with their feelings and to be able to have homosexual sex. Like, I don't care if it's right or wrong. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. And I don't like any God who would command uh, along those lines. And and just to to make clear, we're talking in sort of examples here, but is what you're saying, Blake, if there's just one person who is relationally open but has this barrier – 
then this this undercuts um, Schellenberg's argument altogether. Is that what you're saying? Right. What we need to find is an example. We only need one to undermine a key premise of the argument. An example where God would allow uh, a an, a non-believer in God, a non-theist, to remain a non-theist even if the person was um, open to believing in God. Uh, and this is an example of of such a person, is a person who would enter into an improper relationship if God revealed himself to them. And yes, some people are, are if God revealed his existence to that person, or more accurately ensured that they came to belief in some way, that person would just never—they uh, would believe that God exists, and they might even choose to be friends with God. They would be in a relationship, but it wouldn't be uh, the right kind of hmm. uh, creator-creation relationship. And and from your perspective, Justin, just, just so that I'm clear on this as well, do you sure. have to—are you kind of under an obligation to, to merely show that there could be one person who doesn't um, suffer from any of Blake's objections uh, who still doesn't believe in God? Um, correct, correct. And, and that would prove the argument. Um, I, or or do, would you need to show that yeah. ev- ev- every well, every non-resistant believer who is open to being in a relationship doesn't doesn't fall under any of these cat- categories? So the argument uh, argues that look that these non-resistant non non-believing persons that it it says that God would necessarily or sorry it says that God would necessarily not allow even those persons to exist. So there would be no non-resistant non-believers. There would only be um, persons who uh, whose failure to believe is a result of their resistance. So that's that's the claim of the argument. Um, now, I mean, I, again, we're, if we go back to this this notion of you know persons still resistantly seeing God as morally imperfect, um, this to me is is just a big red herring uh, because I'm sorry, I, I don't see theism as even coherent if it if it includes god giving a uh, deficient uh, revelation of himself if the belief in the god that the person is is thinking about is one that isn't morally perfect then they're not actually believing in god this is a story in which god apparently gives persons a belief in him but that is belief in a morally imperfect god it just does not make sense um, and again, to to press the point here, uh, this notion that God would be unable to connect the moral dots for persons uh, is that that's just impossible on theism. I'm sorry. Once you take once you take theism seriously, that is something that will happen within the context of relationship. God will continually work toward that. Maybe. Maybe they never get to the point where the person agrees with God on every moral issue. That is so irrelevant. It couldn't be more irrelevant. The, the, the question is whether or not there is a continually developing and growing and valuable relationship going on. And that's what the argument is about. I'll get another quick response from you now, Blake. But I, I did want to, if we get time to open up some of those other areas, you, you talk about the, the the possible greater goods that come out of God remaining hidden, at least for some time from non-believers, and greater relational goods that may obtain as well and so on. So, um, but yeah, briefly, do you want to come back on, on Justin's uh, objection that at the end of the day, God sh- should be capable of being able to sustain a, a meaningful relationship, even if we don't have final agreement between the the new believer and God on on all his moral 
uh, decisions? Yeah, so we're going through uh, five categories of uh, persons who uh, who God might uh, hide from. One of them are persons who God knows would enter into a perpetually improper relationship, and Justin's coming back and saying, well, uh, that seems incoherent. God would certainly be able to ensure that any person in a relationship will ultimately um, not be in an improper relationship. Uh, he can accommodate these things. And and I asked a question. I there, there were two responses I gave, but one of them was the question, well, how could God prove to someone that he's all good? Even if he revealed his existence, how what could he do? No matter how many good things he does, the person just will always doubt God's moral goodness. And this could prevent the person from ever wanting to worship God. And I just don't know if it's coherent to talk about a divine revelation that would uh, convince someone otherwise who's just not going to trust and have faith in God on the basis of of other actions. Um, otherwise, tell me how he would do it. Um, the person might just forever think lowly of God, and there's nothing God can do at that point aside from violating free will. The other response, which Justin didn't get to uh, have time to respond to, maybe he wants to, or we can move on, was that even if God convinced them uh, that this action, like homosexuality, this is just our example, there are multiples, but that's the example we're playing with. Even if God convinces them that it is morally wrong, the person could still hate the command and, and choose not to worship God, even if they agree that it's morally wrong. So that was where yeah. we sort of So we've off. kind of restated really the positions there. Um, and we it might make sense to move on because obviously for you, Justin, you you simply can't see why it wouldn't be within God's power to, to, to do that um, without necessarily right. violating free will, presumably. Um, the the it because some, on one level yeah the, the you could turn around and say well of course god can can make someone agree with his moral commands simply by making them agree with his moral commands but then that does raise the question of of whether that that person has consciously agreed you know um that they've been won over to to believing that rather than it just sort of god's been a puppet master and and made them think that um and for you, is is the free will issue an important one, Justin? That that this relationship is entered into in that sense freely, and um, their their view of God is kind of taken, is not simply downloaded into their brain, but is kind of consciously accepted in a kind of free way. Uh, for, for... I, th- I think I think largely the free will issue is, is irrelevant. So no, nothing about my response here is arguing that God would just uh, force. Uh, a belief on them. Rather, it's that God would connect the dots more, uh, would connect the dots logically for them, uh, such that it reveals things, right? So when I connect the dots logically for you about something, uh, you can't, like, ignore this, right? You you will accept it in the sense that you understand it intellectually, right? You might not like it, but that's irrelevant, right? So in this relationship, again, nothing requires about human-divine relationships that, that humans believe uh, and accept every moral proposition that God has for them. Uh, the point is that if there's a continually growing and a continual understanding of deeper and deeper into the knowledge of God. That's what we're after, the knowledge of God, the intimate um, But I'm sure there must God. be many people, Justin, you've tried to connect the dots for in a perfectly logical mm-hmm. way, but who have still kind of turned around and said— no, I don't agree. Or I, you know, and so I, I could imagine. Yeah, but I'm not God, right? Right. Fair enough. Yes. Um, but, <laughs> but even I, I could imagine, in a sense, I suppose that person then, by definition, becomes resistant if if they are, are being presented with, you know, a case being made by God, and yet they still reject it. Is that what you're saying? That they would then no longer be be you know fall within the terms of of a non-resistant person because they would have to accept. The, the the logic of God if they were presented with it and they were they were not 
resistant for some other reason to God. Is, is that right. Kind of either they're either they're resistant or whatever they believe in isn't actually God. It's something different. It's perhaps something like more like Stephen Law's uh, evil God hypothesis, yes. where they view mm. God as having some uh, you know abhorrent moral views or something. Right. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, this might be a good time to move on to some other arguments. <laughs> That's I think we touched on that in an interesting way, at least. Yeah, um, let's do that. Um, obviously, Blake's still of the opinion that um, for him, it's perfectly feasible to, to think that someone could continue to um, live in an improper relationship, yeah, um, forever um, with God uh, without them being convinced of, of his moral goodness and so on, necessarily. Um, we are going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment's time to start to wrap up today's show it feels like we've only you know touched on one or two elements of this this wide argument and um, and we'll see what we can manage in the last sort of segment of the program today you're listening to uh, a discussion on the hiddenness of god we're tackling this at very much a philosophical level today with justin sheba he's an atheist philosopher runs the real atheology website and youtube channel and blake gunter junter i should say blake junter he's a young christian <laughs> philosopher and he's been working on not just this but all manner of apologetics issues issues at his beliefmap.org website and uh, i do recommend you go there and check it out um but today responding to the problem of divine hiddenness and uh, we'll hear from blake again in a moment's time on the other side of a short break uh, well in the final part of our discussion today on divine hiddenness so we've been hearing from justin sheber and blake junter uh, both philosophers one's an atheist one's a christian and uh, this question of why god doesn't simply reveal himself to everyone who would like to know and would willingly enter into a relationship with God if he simply revealed his his existence to them and um, and this this has led to, to all kinds of conversations interesting uh, back and forth across the course of the program um, why the, the argument that it shows that no perfectly loving God exists given that there are people who are non-resistant but still don't believe well Blake Junter, our Christian philosopher, has been saying, well, there are all kinds of reasons why God may not reveal himself to people because of the improper relationship that might develop, people entering into it for the wrong kinds of motives, believing in God because they feel like they've got a gun to their head, um, that kind of thing. And um, and there were other categories as well, other ways in which Blake felt that there were all kinds of ways in which this argument fails. Um, uh, Justin Sheba, um We've covered a lot of ground there in terms of that one about why non-believers um, who become believers might um, develop inappropriate relationships with God. But um, there were other categories, such as the, the third one that Blake uh, said there, that um, some people might enter into a proper relationship, but then abandon it later on. And then there was also these these wider reasons for why God might not reveal himself to everyone, uh, greater relational goods um, better quality relationships. The search for God is is part of the the greater thing that that person can then you know look back on in eternity. Um, and even you know some of the good things that might emerge from the fact that um, God doesn't reveal Himself to everyone uh, in the world. Um, any you particularly happy to kind of um, to come back on in the last uh, ten minutes or so of today's show? Sure, sure. So um, so one of the things that I, I thought was actually um, interesting argument um is the the notion that uh you know god might hide from non-resistant persons as a way to kind of bring about a, a situation in which they might cooperatively work together or you know um learn about god kind of find out for themselves that god exists right mm. uh this is the kind of you know this 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 
kind of speaks to the notion, you know, the goods of, of us having this conversation right now, me and Blake on opposite sides of the metaphysical spectrum, you know, the goodness of that, right? Um, so that's that that seems like a plausible good here. But I, I here's why this shouldn't be convincing. Uh, when it comes to the, the question of God's existence, uh, when compared to the much deeper investigation of once God is is understood and believed to exist, uh, the investigation deeper and deeper into the knowledge of God, uh, that is going to be um, uh, proportionally much more of a of a of a greater good. So the good of discovery can be again accommodated within the context of relationship. Uh, so when we're talking about uh, the goodness of discovery, that's not something that gives any reason for God uh, to hide from non-resistant persons. Rather, it's a reason for God to reveal Himself, and then for those persons to uh, to embark upon the discovery of going deeper and deeper into the knowledge of God uh, by knowledge of acquaintance, knowledge of experience, and deeper still. Can can I kind of interject with perhaps something just to ground it in, a, in an example? And it was one Blake mentioned earlier. Take, for instance, the story of, of C.S. Lewis. Now, I think he was in his 30s when he became a, a believer and, and a little while later that becoming specifically a Christian theist. Um, but of course, he has was then able to use his story and his story of journeying to to belief uh, in a way that produced, you know, books and programs and radio uh, series and so on in ways that then helped many, many countless other believers, I would include myself, to to appreciate their relationship with God or to come into a relationship with God. And, I, and I'm guessing sure. that's one example where Blake would say God may have had good reasons for not immediately revealing himself to C.S. Lewis, but kind of holding back in some way and, and allowing Lewis to come to belief in God through the rational means he eventually did um, come to belief in God rather than sort of just giving him immediate obvious... Um, because because then his story, has, you know, the nature of his conversion over a, a longer period of time has helped countless other people. So so d- d- is that kind of helpful? In t- d- is that the kind of example where, where, you know, Blake would say... Well, there you've got a good example of a greater good coming out of some, the fact that God, at least for a period, hid himself from C.S. Lewis. Right. We can understand that to be uh, a good thing in the world that exists, right? Mm. In the actual world where there are persons who don't believe uh, and who are not resistant, right? Um, but that, of course, doesn't address the question of, of why in the first place they were non-resistantly in a state of non-belief about, about the existence of God, right? Um, so that to me, uh, it doesn't make sense of, it doesn't make sense of the argument, uh, with, with regard to his story being a kind of inspiration, uh, for others, uh, that, that, that seems irrelevant in the sense that, um, the persons to which this would be an inspiration, uh, they're again, either going to be resistant to the idea or they're going to be open to it and, they're, if they're open, uh, they are going to believe if God exists. That is what perfect love would entail. So we shouldn't need the example of C.S. Lewis's life to believe. God should just grant us belief. Um, right. It makes sense if we beg the question that God did create this actual world. Right. Um, do you want to come back on this, Blake? And we'll, we'll start to begin to round things up if that's possible. Yeah. So right here, uh, Justin has brought us down to category number five where we're talking about greater, not necessarily relationship goods, but greater goods 
total, and I'll get into the good he's talking about in a response in a second, but uh, Justin uh, Schieber's response was that, well, um, as good as these things are, the goods of relationship are even better, and at least for the person. Um, and there are multiple responses. One is to do what you uh, just did, Justin Briley, is you just go back to category number four and say, okay, fine. Well, then let's focus on the goods of relationship, both the quantity of relationships and the quality. And you mentioned the quality of relationship um, regarding C.S. Lewis. And from his conversion, you get more relationship goods total around the world that you get to enjoy for eternity. C.S. Lewis certainly gets to enjoy it for eternity um, as a result of the way God did it. So that's a relationship good, and it would block off Ju- uh, Justin Schieber's particular response that relationship goods are the best. But there are other ways. So just to recap, what we're talking about Category 5, and I mentioned multiple, and we, you know Justin Schieber hasn't had a chance to respond to all, but this doesn't have to carry all the weight. This is just one good of multiple goods. One of them is that, yes, uh, in as a result of hiddenness, we get to have more cooperation in a relationship among humans. And so one person who argues along these lines is Dumsday. And what Dumsday says is one of the greatest goods that you could give to someone is to give them the opportunity to introduce someone else to God. And what that does is that creates an eternal relationship between you and the person that you introduce to God. Then you get to enjoy that relationship for eternity. It's a powerful relationship. It's a it's a badge that you get to carry with you for all eternity, and this is a powerful good. Um, and so uh, I guess uh, Justin's response at that point as well, as good as that is, relationship is even better. And the final response for me at that point is, I don't think that's clear. Maybe it's better for the individual to be in relationship a little earlier, um, but I think that these are eternal goods, and relationship goods aren't the only goods. Yeah. So so it's just one example, as you say, Blake, of, of uh, I'm sure a thousand ways you could envisage that God remaining hidden, at least for a time, may may result in a greater good. One being that, you know, if God simply revealed himself to everyone who would be open to God's existence, uh, we'd never have the opportunity to have a show like Unbelievable, where I try and persuade people to become <laughs> to become Christians. Right. Um, you know, and, and just think You're how much just think how much the world would be missing out if there was no Unbelievable. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I kind of get the point there. Um, Justin, do you, does your kind of well relationship will always trump that? You know, will is that always the, the comeback you'll have there? That that it's it's un- inconceivable that whatever better goods might emerge from God remaining hidden, it'll still never be better than someone being in a relationship with God as soon as possible. Oh, sure, because relationship with God is the greatest relationship good possible. I mean, that is what we are created for, right? We're told that on theism, uh, at least one of the main reasons we're told, uh, is a deeper knowledge of God. So, um, you know, we're talking about uh, the kind of good of, um, you know, introducing a person to God, right? Um, well, why are why are why would we want to ignore the good of once once in a relationship with God, um, cooperatively embarking on an investigation with your friend, you know, in this other in this other scenario, uh, to better understand God, to uh, grow in your deeper understanding of God, both experientially uh, and in other ways as well. What, what if the better um, understanding again, of God is dependent on the struggle that took place? to come to believe in God. I mean, it's it's conceivable that some things, some ways of understanding God are only possible if there was a kind of a period of non-belief 
which kind of prepared you for for having a better understanding in the long run? Yeah, I, I, I guess I don't see that there is a possible good uh, of of the sort of what you described there, where there where it requires a period of of where God has shut himself off from the person. I mean, how can we say that God perfectly loves this person if there's if there are times at which God is is actively hiding from this person, even though this person is open and uh, perhaps seeking God? Um, that 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 seems to be in complete in completely direct uh, contradiction to the notion that God is unsurpassably loving. How can He be loving if He's if He's He's, he's well, it's purposely kind of, hiding it, it, from a person? It kind of very much reflects the the problem of suffering, and and I suspect that what Blake's going to come back with is a, the similar kinds of responses that come for that. Why God might allow periods of suffering in people's lives, even as a loving God. But Blake, do you want to make an answer for yourself and we'll, we will start to wrap it up then? Uh, I think we've hit on uh, the main points here. Just know that there are, you know, that I, I surveyed uh, 14 uh, different reasons. Right now we're looking at the last category, category five, and we're looking at reason number 14, that um, hiddenness can, uh, what hiddenness can buy us is more cooperation and relationship among humans um, this doesn't need to carry the full weight. Uh, I think that there are many goods that come into play that um, can outweigh the good of of um, of this individual person we're looking at being in relationship with God. Um, yes, God is all loving, but God has more properties than that. As I mentioned before, God is also all just. Um, he has other properties that build into what God values. And it's interesting because some of these uh, you know, God can't have it both ways. God might have to choose between um, one or the other. Uh, on my view, um, what God is ultimately looking for in virtue of being all loving and all just is for the all just side, God wants a world without any evil whatsoever. Okay. And in virtue of being all good, God wants free moral agents to be in relationship with him. And now you have a tension that God has to deal with. Um, how do you get uh, free moral agents and simultaneously a world without evil. And I think that that's where the gospel comes in, at least for Christianity, is that God has to provide a way to cover uh, their wrongdoings already. If he's perfectly just, he needs to deal with that, but also provide a way for people to enter into moral perfection freely. And on Christianity, the way you do that is by submitting your will to God. You get to freely choose to be perfect, and God empowers you to do that. And that's how you can get a world without evil. Um, all these people have lived in submission to God, and now God can get a, a heaven. Um, so there. I, I, long story short, I think that there are several goods that come into play, and uh, God's lovingness isn't the only thing you have to calculate for to make sense of it. Okay. So, guys, I'm going to challenge you to both give you kind of your 30-second pitch summation of, of, <laughs> of why you think the argument works and why you think the argument doesn't work. So starting with you, Justin Sheba. Sure. So the divine hiddenness argument, again, is I think, you know, as, as Blake noted, it's a bold argument, but I think it's bold for a reason. Um, that is to say that God, the idea of God is bold. The idea of God is such that if one changes from not believing to believing, it changes everything. It is a game changer. And, um, and because of that, because of the boldness of divine love and what it would seek, uh, I think the argument is a powerful argument okay thank you and uh 30 second pitch summation from you 
Uh, Blake. Yeah. First, um, I just want to thank Justin again for um, having this conversation. Um, Justin and I are are good buds. We really appreciate thinking about these things together. Um, and uh, it's interesting. Like I, Justin is one of my favorite uh, atheists. For sometimes I'll come across sort of the new atheist type. And um, for these guys, they only hear about guys like Richard Dawkins or these other um, atheists. And um, I try to encourage these people, look, look away from Richard Dawkins and start paying more attention to guys like uh, Justin, because Justin is getting into the peer-reviewed literature, um, and he, he will help you grow philosophically. So um, I encourage people to, to check out his stuff, because he does it right. Um, for... Uh, my final response, I would just want to say again, I mean, Justin hasn't had a chance to respond to everything, but to summarize, just remember the, the categories, okay, so that you can explore these on your own. There's a lot published that you can read for free online, but there's, a, again, so much more to read, so much of more course. published. This is a gigantic yeah. this, argument. This is, this is very much, as ever, scratching the surface. Um, you can delve a lot deeper at beliefmap.org. You can, in fact, find all kinds of interesting pathways through all kinds of different uh, philosophical and apologetic arguments there. That's uh, run by Blake, who's been our Christian guest on the show today. Justin Sheba is also um, a great advocate for uh, atheism and uh, so glad to be able to have had you on twice uh, in relatively quick succession, Justin, uh, in, uh, since the beginning of the year. Real Atheology is the place to go for more from Justin Sheba. Uh, find it on his website and YouTube channel. And uh, thank you, gentlemen, both. It's a podcast now, yes. And a podcast, <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. yes. It's uh, all kinds of ways to interact with it. I'll make sure there are links from today's program to both, uh, both my guests' websites and podcasts and so on. Uh, but for the moment, uh, Justin and Blake, thank you for being with me on the program today. Thanks for having me again, Justin. have questions or comments about this week's episode, visit realatheology.com or email us at realatheology at gmail.com. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Real Atheology. If you find value in this podcast, there are a number of ways by which you can help support the show. You can submit a review of the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast client. Share the show with your friends and family. Join Patreon and pledge a modest amount per episode at patreon.com slash realatheology or donate via the PayPal link on our website. The intro theme is by Thomas Smith of the Serious Inquiries Only podcast. All other music is by Jason Camo of A Lost State of Mind. We would like to thank our patrons. Matt Smith, Richard Kane, Daniel Stenning, Jeremy Zeers, Brandon McCleary, John Danaher of philosophicaldispositions.blogspot.com, Jason Mecoleta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Selinger.